This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... One-shots and con-runs. The Battle of Poltava. Investigative scenario design. And Sarah Ellen Whitman. So, Ken, the auspicious moment is upon us. I've been talking about Feng Shui 2 for nearly a year now. The Kickstarter date approacheth. Yes, we'll be locking and loading on Wednesday, September 17th at 8 p.m. With the usual one-month window? Yeah, the campaign will run until Friday, October 17th. So, whether you're an early adopter or a last-minute roll under the descending blast door as the bullets fly type, the fine team at Atlas Games is ready for you. And for role players inexplicably tuning into our show for the first time, remind us what Feng Shui is. It's the classic action movie role-playing game inspired by the giddy, ultraviolet heights of Hong Kong cinema, now making a golden comeback in a revved-up and super-tuned all-new edition. And to mix up various action genres, from gravity-defying martial arts to blood-spattered gunplay, it features the Key War. Yes, the players fight across key time periods to control key sites, of geomantic power and thus history itself. And as you've been saying, you've gone back to this much-beloved game that changed the way a lot of people played and made it, would you dare say, fasterer and furiouser? I am confident in that statement. Who do you want to play, Ken? A supreme martial artist, a wily sorcerer, an icy cool killer on a bullet-strewn path to redemption? I am nothing if not an everyday hero. Well, look out, because there's a cyborg gorilla headed this way. People will be glad to finally jump on this. You've been whipping them into a froth on the social media. I've never had so much excitement around a project in development before, so it's not about whether we'll do it, but how much we and the backers together can use the funding process to awesome it up. So the question is, how amazing a realization of feng shui can you make it? And the answer starts on Wednesday, September 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. When the gun goes off, rush to Kickstarter and search for Feng Shui 2, Action Movie Roleplaying, or Robin D. Laws. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Tuka Haimola asks Ken and Robin, why do you keep mispronouncing my name? Well, the answer to that is you're Finnish. <laughs> and that is you're Finnish. And we're not blessed in the ways of the Swomi, which is also mispronounced. Oh, we've totally wasted so much of Tuka's time. How do you make a great one-shot time-limited? Ha-ha! Look at that. It was a Segway con game. Robin, how do you make a great one-shot time-limited con game? So the first thing is to keep it simple. Uh, it sounds like an obvious point, but let's start with the obvious points and see if we can run out of obvious points and come to uh, <laughs> esoteric ones later on. Your objective is to have a really short plot line that has a great beginning, a big finish at the end, and enough connective tissue to get you to those two things. So if you start by thinking of those two scenes and how you might get through them, and then, of course, remain open to the surprises that the players will throw at you, I think you're a long way toward getting there. So uh, tip number one, uh, keep it simple. Ken, what's your tip number two? My tip number two is to drill down even further than the core activity of the game to the core scene of the game. What is the thing that is happening in the best scene you could possibly imagine to advertise the game that you're playing? And that might be 
the paladin beheads a dragon with a mighty cleave. It might be we all go mad as Byaki feast on our flesh. Whatever that scene is, whatever that you'd put into the trailer of the movie based on your game, build everything around that scene and don't be afraid to make a railroad or an antlion pit or something where everything spirals you towards that scene inevitably. Because the reason you're playing a one-shot or a time-limited con game is to get that uh, that espresso jolt, that, that supercharged uh, amount of specific game fun, as opposed to just, gosh, I do like sitting down and rolling dice. That's pretty exciting. What you want is, is that moment that sells the game to you uh, and ideally to the other players, so that when they leave, they say, that was a really great time. That was a great moment. I lived the trailer of the of the, of the con game description. Yes, the, the occasional skunk in the woodpile aside, most people attending a con game are going to value energy and fun over the theoretical rules of what makes a good game session, so that... If you do nudge them a bit in one direction, but have a big finish at the end and everybody gets a chance to do something, you're ahead of the game. And that's really what it's all about. And so I guess that leads us to my second tip, which is once you've worked out your trail of events from the beginning to the big finish, make sure everybody all the players have something to do. And so, in general, we're talking about uh, pre-generated characters. So, for example, you could tee off of Ken's idea of, here's the big moment. Well, what is it that all of the characters that you are pre-generating are going to contribute to that big moment? So, design the characters to do that. So, figure out what everybody can be adding to that scene and give them all something to do. So, if it's a paladin fights the dragon thing while well, figure out what the thief can do to help wound the dragon first and what the um, magic user can do and, and so forth. You, in a typical set of rules, if, if it's something that simple, you won't have to worry so much about that. But if you're looking at a game where the delineations between character types are not as sharp or the tropes aren't as evident, you may want to, you know, here's uh, the face guy in our investigative group how does he contribute to the resolution of this storyline? How does the uh, fighty guy contribute? How does the uh, psychic get a big moment before her brain explodes? And uh, that brings me to another point. But, Ken, I think it's your turn. I was going to key off your point about the pregens. Make the characters interesting and ideally fun to play. Which And the great thing about a one-shot is they don't have to be balanced against each other for long-term play. As long as everyone gets one cool spotlight moment or you can really feel like you're enjoying playing it, then that is going to be a fun game to run. If you look at all of your good on, and again, going back to the notion that this is, you're, you're making a movie or even half of a movie or maybe a, an act of a movie, um, make, you know, make the characters big and fun and, and exciting. Uh, you can either do that by having pre-gens that everyone already knows and loves. So it's like you're Sherlock Holmes and you're Indiana Jones and you're Tarzan and you're Sam Spade and you're getting together because Fu Manchu and Dr. Doom have stolen the Blackbird from the Kingdom of Atlantis or whatever it is. Or you make it so that everyone's got a really great, obvious character hook that's going to make them really fun. You say, um, you're 
a dainty old lady who is also the most powerful psychic in Britain, and you're deathly afraid of rats. And then you just make sure that there's rats in the in the scene somewhere so that she can scream and go bananas and start telekinesing stuff everywhere all over the room and have a, a like a good key off some GMs, some designers for one shots. They make sure that every character has a reason to yell at another character, which is fun if you're looking for that kind of interpersonal drama. I usually prefer to try if you have a reason to care about another character, because that way you're watching because, oh no, that's my sister who's so terribly afraid of rats and throwing things around and is going to burn out her brain unless we can do something. Keep it simple also applies to the pregens themselves. So the elderly psychic who's afraid of rats is as much as you need. Um, sometimes you do see convention scenario packs where there's a big chunk of text for you to assimilate about your character, much of it not necessarily directly relevant. First of all, make sure that the characters are ones that you are designing or at least heavily modifying to fit your scenario, and then make them very simple and clear so that the players have something that they can add, so that rather than looking at a 300-word bio and thinking, well, how do I work all of these things about my character, including her a tea cozy collection and the mm. uh, nephew she hasn't uh, seen since March or uh, all of these perhaps unrelated details, give them a couple things to bounce off of and then let them run with it because that's where they bring their input into it. And if you run the convention game several times, you might be pleasantly surprised by the degree to which the different psychic old ladies who you run through the scenario at different times all contrast with one another as the players have the room to bring part of themselves and their own creativity into that basic springboard that you give them. So as much as possible, think of the details about their characters as really clear, simple tropes that they can then build on during play. Yeah, to sort of tap onto that, something that you can do in this modern age of mystery and wonder, you can, you know, stunt cast your player characters. So when they're given the packet, they're given the packet of the old lady who's afraid of rats, and the picture on the old lady is, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire. And so they're like, oh, great, I can do crazy Robin Williams Scottish accent while I'm playing this. Or they're playing, you know, the... The, the, the hardened mercenary and the picture is Sean Bean. And so they're like, oh, this is exciting. I get to, you know, be all Sean Beany. And so you can sort of bring the, the players into the action of identifying with someone that they already find interesting or glamorous, even if they're not playing, you know, Sherlock Holmes or Robert Heinlein or, or someone famous necessarily. Right. And so the image communicates a lot of information, but it's not laying out something deterministically. It's giving you a suggestion to bounce off of. So if you get a picture of Robin Williams as Mrs. Doubtfire, you can carry that as far as you want or, or do as, as little as you want with it. But that conveys a lot of non-textual information. Uh, in addition to having the character, the player's introduction to their characters when you hand out the sheets be as quick and snappy as possible, I would also suggest that you begin the action as late as possible. And an in-media res beginning, which we've talked about in a previous episode of the podcast uh, works great for that. You don't want to have the first scene be the meeting in the office where they're given the assignment and then may even turn down the assignment or them talking to each other as they're waiting to get on the plane to go to Antarctica. Wait until they are in the jungle facing the strange uh, swaying uh, beasts in the distance for the first time or in the plane over Antarctica when it starts to go down. So have a 
big start. And again, that's something that players could rightly object to in another style of play for a long run campaign because they will then have, well, why did I agree to be in the plane yet and so forth? But again, the cutting to the chase aspect of quick run convention play, you're going to get a lot more uh, forgiveness from that. But if you make the mistake of giving the players choices that will screw up the fun if they're allowed to make them, they may fall back into their usual habits of their home games with their home GM, where they fold their arms and force the GM to petition them for the right for their characters to be motivated. So cut to as far into the action as you can and assume player character motivation. And while you're running it, if the players throw that back at you and say, well, why would I agree to be on the plane? Is, you tell me why you agreed to be on the plane because you're there. Yeah, Mrs. Doubtfire, why are you on the plane? You're yeah. so smart. Um, yeah, I, that's something that I, I learned myself after running a lot of Call of Cthulhu adventures when I was a demo monkey for Chaosium. And I, I used to run this really great uh, investigative scenario that built this really crazily good climax. But the trouble is that there's, you know, three hours of investigation before you get to the crazily good climax. And I thought, gosh, this runs the risk of not involving people as much. And so I start, I, my new scenario began, you know, with you having already murdered an archaeological team somewhere in Afghanistan and destroyed, unfortunately, one of the two heavy trucks that you need to get the idol out of Afghanistan. So you're really... Why did we destroy the truck, Ken? <laughs> Why did we destroy the truck? Well, you know, when you start shooting at people with an anti-materiel rifle, something sometimes goes wrong. They don't usually mind because they know they have an anti-materiel rifle and then only oh, there you go. Okay. the really good players realize, oh my god, we've been given something. The, the, the truck was asking for it. Now <laughs> that you explain it that way. It had a dirty face on it. When you can scare people with the treasure, then you've got a really good horror game going. And the anti-material rifle should should always be a warning. Let that be a warning to you kids. Also, uh, I guess we can talk more about working out uh, what the big finish will be. But I have often run improvised convention games where I don't pre-generate characters. And I let the players... Uh, I even ran a demo of HeroQuest 2 uh, one time when that was the new thing I was demoing and started off the players by saying, uh, what genre would you like to play? <laughs> um, and so if you are really good at improvising, you may find that you do a better job with a short-run convention game if you make it up as you go along with the principles that we've laid out already, rather than trying to stick to an existing script, no matter how simple or elegant it is, because that way you can just adapt to what the players do, and as long as you can think up the... Uh, gripping, engaging opening sequence and sort of have a sense in your mind as you're going along what the various big finishes could be, uh, you can lead them to something uh, climactic. Another thing about that, whether you are improvising or running a pre-created uh, or writing a pre-created scenario, I guess, is that remember, these characters don't need to exist after you run this one game. So you can have them go through big arcs and have them come out radically changed. <laughs> or uh, in pieces. Yes, whereas <laughs> insane or dead, of course, are subsets of radically changed. Uh, but you can also do things that uh, would blow them out as, as iconic heroes. Things that you would, again, never want to do as the first scenario in an ongoing campaign, uh, you're basically, it may be useful to think of a con run as both the introduction and the climax of a long running campaign uh, with all, all of the meandering in the middle. Yeah. The thing that you need to 
also sort of keep in mind is unless the specific point of the demo or the or the con game is to show off a subsystem, right? Oh no, this game is really all about conjuring demons. We have to use the conjuring demon rules. Oh no, no, we if we don't have uh, multiple arrow attack or auto fire, then the the uh, the badass ranger won't be as neat. Don't use any rule subsystem, and don't invite the use of any rule subsystem that you don't need to get to that big explosion at the end. Because most games are more complex than they are uh, played, and certainly that you should make that true in a con game, even if it isn't true to begin with. You should start calving out subsystems, calving out rules, even... Uh, you know, dare I say, abstract things as far as possible, you know, to bring a little gumshoe into it, even if you aren't playing gumshoe, in the sense that, yes, you're going to spot the tracks, yes, you're going to get through the secret door, yes, you're going to find the dragon's magical horde that is invisibly laid over the wizard tower, or whatever it is, because if you don't, the last thing you want is to have to be remembering or looking up a rule system during uh, a one-shot. Nothing drains tension faster. At your home table, it's all right because everyone's friends and, and they're cool with it, and they've had to do it a hundred million times, so it's a familiar activity. At a con game, it's just dead. It's it's just dead time and dead space, and it and it ruins everything. So Right, especially if you're showing off a new game and you're trying to give people a sense of what that game is. You want to pick one thing about that game to teach, and other than that, you're there to show them a good time and to associate the pleasure of playing with that game, not to teach them how everything works. It can be a challenge because some people, particularly at Gen Con and, and shows of that magnitude, do seek out demo games in order to try and learn the whole system. But I think that you're, as a someone running the demo, that you really you're trying to give them a taste and get them hooked and interested and once they learn the one thing about that game, they can be interested enough to work out the rest at their leisure the way that role players have done since the beginning of time and or the 1970s. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, for example, uh, when I run a one-shot Hillfolk, I don't bring the procedural rules into play. Uh, they certainly have their place in the system, and you sometimes uh, need or want them in an ongoing campaign. But for the purposes of that, I want to show character generation, and I've even gone from conversely from a stripped down version of character generation just to the full character generation but i talk faster <laughs> and then uh do the dramatic scene structure which are the really key things about uh whole folk slash drama system and anything else on on top of that and like the procedural system it's there but i don't want to try and teach them three things you know one thing that's over quickly and then the main thing of the uh the drama structure is all I uh, feel that I want to confront people with. And you can pick whatever game you're thinking of running and pretty clearly identify what the feature thing is about it that you want to show off. And then, as Ken suggests, uh, kind of abstract or hand wave the rest. And you can just say, there's a more complicated system for this, that if this were session three in our home game, I would totally break out the vehicle chase rules. But for now, a whole bunch of cars have exploded and the snake men are, are crawling out of them toward you. Yeah, so what do you do, Mrs. Doubtfire? Exactly. <laughs> what do you do with the snake men crawling out of the fiery cars, Mrs. Doubtfire? And uh, since this whole topic is about speed and brevity, and we have covered a whole bunch of points, I think it is time to exit the con table and go over to the uh, snack area, and then perhaps from there, on to our next hut.
Hey Ken, have you heard of Shotguns v. Cthulhu, the pulse-pounding collection of action-packed Lovecraftian tales from Stoneskin Press? I have, because I have a story in it, and you edited it. Of course you do, because that was a rhetorical question for marketing purposes. Would you be asking, because Pelgrane Press, Stoneskin's mothership company, has a special deal on Shotguns v. Cthulhu until September 1st? Another rhetorical question, but I'll allow it. Yes, until September 1st, if you go to the Pelgrane Press store and order a hard copy of Shotguns v. Cthulhu with all of its Iker spattered madness, you get not only an immediate ebook download, as is Pelgrane's won't, as is Pelgrane's won't indeed, you also get an immediate ebook download of Schemers. Would that also be a Stoneskin Press anthology edited by you? That's less rhetorical question, but a leading one, but the answer is again yes. Would this genre-spanning anthology veritably drip with tales of trickery, subversion, and betrayal? It not only would, but does, from such authors as Ekaterina Cedia, Jesse Bullington, and Tobias Bacall. A fine accompaniment, then, to Shotgun's selection of fear, suspense, and bloodshed from writers including Scott Glancy, Dennis Detwiller, and Dave Gross. To get the special ebook Schemer's bonus deal, just go to the Pelgrain Press store and order a print edition of Shotguns v. Cthulhu as you normally would. No coupon code or tricky link required. Will it expire on September 1st, 2014? Just as sure as a Glock-toting Shoggoth is looming up behind you. You're joking, right? I wish I was, Ken. I wish I was. <laughs> The oak veneers, the fine-tooled leather chair, and the horrendous death toll tell us that we've once more entered the August confines of the History Hut. This segment has its origins at Gen Con. Uh, Ken and I were uh, hanging out together at a uh, place of beverage intake, as is sometimes our wont, and I heard Ken say the words, I've been researching this really cool battle. So I handed him my phone and had him type the name of this really cool battle into my Ken and Robin list of topics for the future. And Ken, what is this really cool battle? And here we are in the future, or the, the, yes. the bold new future of the year 1709 AD. The really cool battle is the Battle of Poltava which is perhaps better known uh, in Sweden and Russia than it is in America, because it uh, seems relatively irrelevant to us in our distant uh, future. But at the time, it was the biggest shock. Uh, you know, you, you take ISIS seizing Mosul and you multiply it by about a million. That's how blown away everyone was by the Battle of Poltava. That was the big battle in which Peter the Great, uh, sort of really earned that the great on the end of his name and destroyed literally the best army in Europe and not like by a little. I mean, he really just tore it to pieces. Yes. But previously he was uh, Peter the Adequate. Peter the, you know, has a lot of potential, but let's yes. see. Uh, Peter the Promising. <laughs> uh, so let's zoom out uh, just for a moment and uh, put this in the context of the whole war, which was the great Northern War. You've already suggested uh, when this took place and that it took place between uh, Sweden and Russia. What more do we need to know about uh, where Sweden was uh, when this conflict began and where Russia was? Okay, um, about a hundred, well, not even a hundred years, about uh, 70 years before the Great Northern War, Sweden had just been a happy uh, little monarchy up at the edge of everywhere, and people, you know, sort of, they certainly thought it was pretty great, but they didn't really have any reason to be impressed by it until Gustavus Adolphus, who was one of the four or five uh, 
greatest generals of the gunpowder era, marched the Swedish army into Germany and very nearly won the Thirty Years' War in a year, and then sadly died at the Battle of Lutzen. But even the people he left behind were good enough to basically put Sweden in charge of northern Germany. And once you're in charge of northern Germany, you have a lot of advantages, economic and demographic. And Sweden began to expand out along the Baltic. They took over the old Baltic states. They took over Finland. When one is in Finland, uh, they're still nur nursing a grudge against the uh, accursed Swedes. As as well one should nurse a grudge against one's former colonial master, Robin. They, they view <laughs> the, the Soviets with some uh, some irony, but the Swedes, they're still mad at. Yeah, well, they, as well they should. Be. Anyway, the, the Swedes sort of uh, took over the, the whole Baltic area, which again is a, is a giant resource area in a, in a time when you build ships out of wood and you build their masts out of wood and you specifically build them out of the kind of wood that grows in the Baltic. So if you imagine Sweden as kind of OPEC plus America, you sort of have an idea of how dangerously superpowery it looked to the rest of the countries of Europe. And as a result, all of the other countries around Sweden said, we should get together and beat it to hell. <laughs> <laughs> as, as one does. As one does. And that was Russia, Denmark, Norway, and uh, the king of Saxony, Poland, Lithuania, which was two countries, not one country, and not three countries. <laughs> Hence putting the great in Great Northern. In, in Great Northern. And it sort of was fought on the edges of the War of Spanish Succession, which is one of the many wars that can bid fair to be the First World War before the Great War in 1914. Uh, but anyhow, it's never quite uh, spiraled into being part of the War of Spanish Succession, almost entirely because the Duke of Marlborough uh, went to King Charles XII and sort of said, hey, remember how Sweden saved Protestantism? Maybe you shouldn't get into a war and help a bunch of Catholics. Wouldn't that be great? And Charles XII, being easily uh, gulled by talk of his ancestor, Gustavus Adolphus, agreed. And that's why the Great Northern War sort of stayed its own thing, which probably was not uh, the best possible outcome for Sweden, but there you go. The Swedes beat every single member of that coalition. They, they beat the Danes pretty much instantaneously, which took Denmark and Norway out. Then they beat the Russians at the Battle of Narva, just obliterated their army, uh, took them out, and then... Rather than chase uh, Peter the Great over the frozen swamps and make sure of him, Charles XII said, I'm going to make sure of Saxony, Poland, Lithuania, because they're the real dangerous enemy here, and they're the only Catholics. So he dives into Poland and spends about eight years conquering Poland, during which time Peter the Great sneakily begins to reconquer bits of the Swedish Baltic, including the part that he begins building St. Petersburg on. Uh, and that is the sort of thing that will get Charles's attention. And Charles decides, after having conquered Poland, that now he has to invade Russia and teach Peter the Great not to be such a jerk about things. And that is what sort of sets you up for the, the big invasion in 1708-9 that ends in the Battle of Poltava. So the, the battle itself, you found this an amazing story. So what is amazing about it? First of all, the amazing thing is that when you think, I'm in Sweden, I'm going to invade Russia, you don't really think that the crucial battle is going to happen in the Ukraine, right? You think, that seems a long way out of your way to go to invade Russia if you're starting from Sweden. And indeed, everyone else in Sweden thought that too. But uh, Charles XII was 
lured by the siren call of the Ukrainian Cossacks, their hetman Ivan Mazepa was trying to rebel against the Russians so that the Ukraine would be its own Cossack empire and not part of Muscovy, and thought, if I can link up with Mazepa, I won't have to go into winter quarters in crummy old Poland, or worse yet, crummy old uh, Latvia, and I can be down where everything is warm and there's plenty of grain for my troops in the Ukraine, which is a great theory, but it depends on, A, Mazeppa not being... And, and Latvians and Poles. Now, we're talking crummy 18th century Latvian and Poland. So no, no aspersion today. Yes, no, modern Latvia and Poland are delightful and plentifully supplied with food, although perhaps not necessarily in October, November, December. So uh, he decides to march down into the uh, in, into the Ukraine to link up with Mazeppa and uh, thus go into in, into sort of winter quarters there. But that is several bridges too far, as it turns out, for the Swedish logistical system, which, again, the finest logistical system in the world. But someone had been fighting a great northern war over the entire area that they were trying to get supplies from. And so the guy who was in charge of bringing Charles his supplies, who is General Leuvenhaupt, was not able to find a lot of supplies, and as a result kept being late. That made Charles impatient, so he marched off into the Ukraine with no supplies, which turns out to be just as bad an idea in 1709 as it is in 1941 or 1812. Or ever. <laughs> or ever, really. Yes. <laughs> just don't in, do it, In kids. any period of military history, yes. marching off without supplies, bad choice. Bad choice, especially into Russia, or even the Ukraine. And so the uh, Russians managed to defeat Leuvenhaupt in, in detail at the Battle of Lesnaya, and despite, and this is how awesome the Swedes were in 1709, even though the Russians outnumbered Leuvenhaupt by, depending on whose numbers you buy, something like five to one, they had entire, ta they had complete tactical surprise. They could harass his column anywhere. He's uh, dragging 4,500 ox carts full of supplies behind him. So he's marching at probably two miles a day, if that, maybe a little longer, maybe a little faster because there are Swedes after all. And uh, it's through mud, it's through everything terrible. And they're still only able to get a draw at Lesnaya, and Leuvenhaupt, if his subordinate hadn't retreated from a crucial forest about two-thirds of the way through the battle, might have even won. He might have been able to knock the Russians away at Lesnaya. Now, the trouble, of course, is that that would not have destroyed the Russian army in being, and they would have had plenty more rivers uh, to attack him on. So it's still strategically a terrible idea, but it's a terrible idea based on the fact that Swedes can whip, you know, five times their weight in Russians any day of the week. And if you don't sort of internalize that, no decision that is made during the Battle of Poltava will make any sense. Because when they finally get to the battlefield of Poltava, Charles has basically lost half of his men to starvation and being frozen to death. They're besieging the Russian supply depot at Poltava. Uh, Mazeppa, of course, is off getting lost somewhere. His uh, capital city had been burned down and every man, woman, and child in it had been killed by the, by, by the Russians to prevent Charles from linking up and getting supplies there. So he's grossly under strength. There's supposed to be like 40,000 Cossacks and there's like 6,000 Cossacks there with him. Uh, Leuvenhaupt shows up with basically no supplies. Uh, depending on which source you read, he either has 30 or 4 artillery for his entire army, 30 or 4 cannons, no more than 30 uh, cannons. The Russians have got about 100, 
that they're dragging along. And the Russians then, just to be jerks, they build a series of extra forts across the battlefield, and then another set of forts down the middle of the battlefield, pointing directly at the Swedish army to force Charles, or to attempt Charles, rather, to divide his army. Are they building the forts in real time? They're building the forts in real time. The Russians basically build these over about a two- or three-day period while Leuvenhaupt is, you know, coming up. Uh, Charles is deciding how many men to leave on the siege of Poltava. He's shooting himself in the foot or being shot in the foot, depending on, again, which source you read. So all of a sudden, he has to turn strategic command over to his field marshal, uh, a, a fellow named Carl Gustav Rensklod, which I, who I suspect does not deserve the obloquy of history <laughs> that he's going to get for losing the Battle of Poltava. And so basically, while this is going on, the Russians just keep building... Uh, what turns out to be about ten forts right on the battlefield. Now, excuse my uh, ignorance <laughs> of Renaissance and early modern warfare, but is this a common thing in military history to be building forts during the battle, or is this like a crazy new innovation? Depending on if you have enough timber, you can fort up really, really fast. Uh, Bunker Hill, to pick a battle at random, was turned from a large uh, lumpy hill, which was actually called Breed's Hill, uh, because they built their fort on the wrong hill, into a bristling fortification athwart the Br- the British line of communications in about a day and a half by the yeah, Americans. Making it a hill with a bunker on it. Exactly, in, into a hill with a whole bunch of bunkers on it. And that was in 1776, which is the same technological... I mean, they, they still had shovels. They didn't have anything more complex. And they probably had fewer trees than the Russians did, because the Russians are building it between two forests as a means of sort of channelizing the battlefield even further. So rapid building of forts is the sort of thing that good Western armies could do. Um, Again, no one thought that the Russians were good Western armies, which was, you know, mistake one. And certainly no one thought that they would have the sort of command uh, flexibility to do that, like you suggest, you know, two days before the battle. And that is something I suspect that Peter the Great brings to the thing, because he, you know, whatever his other flaws as a person, was really, really good at getting Russians all pointed in the same direction and doing something uh, useful, as opposed to getting drunk and slouching away the way that they had for the last, you know, 150 years of their military history. So one of the things he was great at was improvised forts. Improvised forts, yes. Well, he had studied as a, car- as a carpenter in the Netherlands, so probably he learned their secret fort technology and then brought it uh, to uh, Russia. Okay, so I got a l- l- little off track there with the fort building, so <laughs> let us uh, cut to the chase. What is the big uh, climactic moment that turns this battle and therefore turns history in favor of Peter and away from the Swedes. The the climactic moment is that uh, about a third of the R- Swedish forces, and again, the, the whole point of building those forts is to cut the Swedish forces into little pieces that then can't talk to each other. One of the reasons the Swedes are so powerful is that, like uh, the Americans now, they have really good command and control. Every subordinate always knows what his task is. They always have a way to get to their... Uh, senior, they have really good messenger systems. They're just a superbly put together army. And Peter, again, is deliberately doing everything he can to screw with their advantage, sort of like just go right into their gears. That's why he builds the forts across the battlefield. That's why he builds that um, oblique line of forts to force the Swedes to move in separate detachments. And indeed, the Swedes do move in separate detachments. And either because Charles the Twelfth is not in command 
and, you know, his foot hurts, or because uh, Field Marshal uh, Reigns Claude is actually not super great at field marshalling, they wind up losing track of what everyone is supposed to do. A third of the army is trying to take one of the... They, they, they've managed to take two, right? Just boom, boom, and they're still taking the third one, and they're um, uh, basically sort of cut off from the entire rest of the battlefield. And all they know is there are a lot more Russians coming. The Russians are bringing in new reinforcements. They've got another 10,000 Kalmyks on the way. They've got, you know, all the guys from the besieged fort of Poltava that could break out at any time. Peter has an unknown number of Russians. And General Rus is basically surrounded by Russians. He's lost about a third of his men. And he says, you know what, this is a terrible idea. Even if I take this fort, there's another six in my way. I'm just going to surrender. And he surrenders his position, and the Russians immediately retake the two forts that he'd already taken. No one else in the Swedish camp knows this, and they're waiting for Rus to link up with them so they can have a unified attack. The, the plan is to go around the forts and force Peter to defend his own baggage train, to, go, to, to, to basically choose between his supplies and getting away from a bunch of angry Swedes. And their, their gamble is that he will choose to get away because that's always what he chooses, and they'll be able to feed on his supplies and they'll win the battle. Poor Levenhaupt actually does his part. He's at the Russian camp. He's he's ready to to um uh, to force them into that position, and his men are like, we're really hungry. If we could just go loot the Russian camp, that would really help us in this battle. And he's like, no, that's not the Swedish way. That borscht smells awful good. <laughs> it's, oh, it's so tasty. I think it's made with that that good kasha, the kind. It's like tapioca, just so. Oh man. But nope, they don't do it. They don't do it. They don't do it. They hold in place, and of course, what that means is they're isolated from everyone else. So the the Russians just keep bringing in more and more men. They basically grind the Swedes down by attrition. The Swedes can't reform. They can't pull back. And eventually, but by the time they figure out that, you know, a third of their men have surrendered and they have to, you know, come up with plan B, the Russians basically begin to completely envelop the Swedish forces. And uh, Menshikov's cavalry comes up. Menshikov is the guy who'd been pestering uh, Leuvenhaupt the whole time. He comes up with his cavalry. There's uh, lots of Kalmyks show up, like I mentioned. And basically, Charles realizes that he is pretty much the last guy on the battle with his, you know, sort of imperial guard and, you know, takes off. And it's at that point that the battle is completely gone. But it's really gone once Rus surrenders, rather than either, you know, managing to take another couple of forts or, you know, doing a fighting retreat back to the Swedish position uh, and saying, okay, that didn't work. What else you got? So are there games based on the Battle of Patalva? There, There is at least one um, Great Northern War war game. I think that there's one that is a specific Battle of Poltava game as well. It might be in one of those um, great battles of the of the early modern series games. Presumably with the fort counters that you uh, put on the board partway through? I would I would hope so. There is also a, a book called, I think it's called The Battle That Shook Europe by a popular historian named Peter England, which is pretty good, although I don't own it. I just uh, read it a while ago, and now I sort of really want to own it, but there you go. And then there is a lot of, you know, Russian stuff on the battle because they're all very, very pleased with it. Uh, and there's an Al Stewart song about the battle called The Coldest Winter in Memory, which is probably an exaggeration, but it was certainly very, very cold if you were <laughs> trapped somewhere in the middle of um, uh, the Smolensk-Ukraine corridor with 
no food, and a lot of Russian forts. So if you're putting together your uh, military history playlist, uh, Al Stewart has a part on that. So why were you researching this? I was just curious because it's, it's one of these things where I was asking myself the question, which I had not known the answer to, of why on earth is this incredibly decisive battle between Sweden and Russia fought in the Ukraine? And I hadn't known... Uh, the Ukraine was in the news, and so I was sort of thinking about the Ukraine and its military history, and I realized that I didn't know what the Swedes were doing down there, and I started looking into it, and I answered the question pretty much instantly, which was, he's trying to get the Cossacks to, to be useful, and but then reading about the battle, it was such a, you know, such a, an illustration of a series of military principles, or the reverse of them in some cases, that it just became a fascinating battle to look at in the same way that Gettysburg, in addition to being very important, is also just a very interesting battle on the ground, or, or Waterloo is a very interesting battle on the ground. There are plenty of, of interesting these... Interesting both strategically and tactically. Right, and there, there are plenty of these battles like Arbella that are not particularly interesting unless you're a giant Alexander the Great fanboy. It's like, oh, look at that. Heavy infantry beats light infantry. Who knew? Heavy cavalry beats light cavalry. Alexander the Great beats everyone. Uh, but, but I mean, his really interesting battles are um, uh, Hyphasis and, to, a, to an extent, Issus. And Issus is even more interesting because we have no idea where the battlefield is. But So if, if uh, I hadn't made this a segment, your research would have been entirely gratuitous. It would have probably eventually turned into something. Um, it's one of those things where uh, there is no such thing as wasted historical knowledge because... As you know, I believe that Earth is the world's greatest role-playing game supplement. You are the walking testament to your own maxim. Exactly, as we all should be, frankly. We, we all sh- yes, that that's your iconic ethos right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, speaking of iconic ethos, uh, the podcast ethos is to keep it moving. Uh, so before more forts are built and circling around us by the Russians, it's time to move on to our next audio treat. Audio Treat is an audio treat assembled at Gen Con uh, during the Gumshoe Adventure Masterclass Seminar, and it is just as masterful and adventurous as that title uh, implies, not least because we brought along our beloved fellow Gumshoe stalwart, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, who some of us knew when he was a mere Gareth Hanrahan and had not yet achieved the exalted heights of Ryder hanrahan Nosity. Uh, yeah, I think that costs 10,000 experience points to add a rider. It does, it does. Or, you know, just um, have a really good agent, obviously. Yeah, so uh, this is Ken and Robin Recycle Audio, and uh, the audio we're going to recycle is, Ken suggested, is from a seminar at Gen Con, and the usual proviso, of course, is that the uh, sound is a little rough because there is no seminar room at Gen Con that uh, produces studio-quality audio when you lay your cell phone and your new slightly fancier microphone on the table. So uh, please forgive any table tapping or a sound of echo in the room, because I think the content is pretty cool. And uh, let's start by joining the masterclass already in progress with Ken describing his Ocean of Clues method. But for trail, for the more formal investigative stuff, I follow what I call the Ocean of Clues method. Not the trail of clues, because the trail of clues can resemble a railroad track. 
and certainly players who are hypersensitive to that will, will perceive it that way. Uh, obviously it isn't, a mystery has to have an end, that's the point of having a mystery. So, and any given course that you follow, you chart it, it, oh look at that, it was only a line, it was only ever a line. But if you present a ocean of clues, if you present a universe in which everything has a significance, a, a, usually a grotty, horrible mythos significance in trail, but that there are enough clues out there that any given batch of them in any given, not even a scene, but any given geographical or time element of the story will give you some, you know, 30% of your recommended daily intake of clue, then you can keep going and you can rely on uh, the players to assemble once they've got between 120 and 250% of the required clues to put it together and get to the climax. And uh, Gar, how do you solve the problems of uh, mystery construction when you first set out? You've got a premise for what your uh, mystery the players are investigating and how do you start to build from premise into a series of scenes for them to interact with? What I normally do is sort of sit down and imagine like, you know, if my players are very, very cooperative and did everything I expect them to do, what would happen? So like, you know, they'll go to the library, they'll, find, they'll like, you know, ask the librarian the right questions, they'll go to, go to the monastery, they'll go through the front door of the monastery, they won't stick around the back, they won't try, try to wipe, sit there observing it. They'll do everything as I expect them to do. And basically build that pretty much railroad of clues. Then I'll go back and go, right, what's, what, what other likely options might they take in, when they go to the library? They might like, you know, investigate the librarian, they might check other books, they burn the place down, given players. <coughs> and they go, right, from these new points I've created, how can I go move forward towards that monastery I need to get to? And you sort of end up with a sort of branching chain that keeps folding back towards the goal. So it's like Ken's Ocean of Clues, only it's more like a pond. <laughs> so you sort of aspirationally envision the ideal investigation yeah, that would and, most efficiently... degrade from that to... <laughs> to, to what the players will actually do. Exactly. And, and that's a, another interesting way to, uh, to, to tackle that. Uh, one of the things that I try to focus on when uh, creating adventures is to make sure that there are alternate ways between the scenes. Something that we've started doing a couple of years ago is adding to the scene headers where the lead-ins and the lead-outs that was, are. That was the single biggest, best thing we've done. I mean, these, like, it's having the, like, what each scene is, is nice, like it's an intro scene, it's a core scene, but having that map was doing um, Slazdy Quartet to make everything suddenly so much clearer. Right, and that way you can catch yourself if you are creating something that is all, that can only unfold in one way. You can realize, oh well, you know, why can't you get from this scene where they go to talk to the guy at Google? Why why does it have to be in that order? Well, it doesn't. So here's another way that that can happen. Let, maybe they're going to go and talk to the cop first, and then the next thing to start doing is building in consequences of the order the players select. Now. Uh, because it's a mystery game, they may not ever be totally aware of what the advantage is of going to the cop before they go to Google, but at least that gives some sort of sense of linearity, uh, non-linearity and unpredictability, and if you possibly can while you're running it, or you can sort of call out for the GM, whenever you have these sort of choices that aren't necessarily apparent to them in the beginning, if you can find a way to underline the fact that this happened as a consequence of your blind decision to do A instead of B, they then at least realize that they're in a world of, of possibilities and choices, and even if they're just proceeding on a hunch, because of course real investigators don't know the total cost-benefit trade-off 
of what order they canvass the neighborhood in. It's just a blind effort to gather in information and, and bring it into themselves. Right, so the question is, ha have we used flowcharts to do this? I uh, was doing that for a while, um, but the problem, the challenge with flowcharts, and we have actual literal maps of some of the adventures in some gumshoe things, is that the more choices you give the players to decide the order in which scenes occur, the more confusing and baffling the flowchart becomes on the page. And so I have moved from the flowchart model to the lead-in, lead-out in the header model because that, that rewards me for building in more avenues between scenes, whereas if I build in a bunch of avenues between scenes and then I have to figure out how to make the frickin' flowchart comprehensible to somebody else, that's a, a cruel punishment as far as I'm concerned. I've started using Scapel, which is by the Sega to Scrivener, and again, it's a flowchart tool. And I agree with Robin, once you get beyond a certain level of complexity, it, the flowchart becomes not useless, but more sort of like you know, sort of a piece of art. Like, you know, <laughs> look, look at this web of interesting scenes. There are lines between all of them. Yes. It, then it just becomes proof of concept. Exactly, that it's, yes. it's, yeah. Don't. Is, is, if, they could, if they claim they're being railroaded, show them this afterwards. <laughs> Does this look like a railroad to you? Actually, it kind of looks like a tube map in the end, only like, you know, if you can go with this, uh, like, you know, multiple circle lines. Right. Well, well if, if your adventure is as complicated as the London Underground, yeah. you've done, done a good job of making it known. Yes. We pick up again with the answer to a question on designing individual clues. My process for clues is sort of, I guess, threefold. And the first one is, it's, it's like what Gareth is. It's like, what would be yes. the obvious <laughs> stupid thing to have <laughs> You know, you find you, you you find the notebook. You find the blood stain. You find the the friendly match girl who tells you about the serial killer. Whatever it is, and you put those in just to make sure that there is something that will get them along. Then what I will do is I will think, what is the scariest, worst way to get the information? How would I least want to find out about the serial killer? And it's like, well, I don't want to find like a hand in my lunch, you know, or whatever. And so it's like, okay, now let's put the scary thing, the worst way, the worst information, or in NBA, the most dangerous way to get the information. And that's often just to, you know, trigger the GM thinking, oh, right, I'm playing a horror game. I'm not actually just sitting here, you know, playing, you know, Cluedo with people. And then the rest of it, the, 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 the sort of the third way, and this is something that because my mind is uh, badly bent, is always going on anyway is I'm thinking, what is the strangest way you can get the information? What sort of arcane, weird things will give you the information? And in a Cthulhu universe, the universe is arcane and weird. And it'll you know, come from the pattern of streetlights, or it'll come from the things that bums mumble in the alley, or it'll come from a weird arrangement of books, or it'll come from some historical fact about the Albemarle Hotel that you didn't know until you just researched it on Google. And you start putting those in. And while I'm doing that, that same part of my mind is sort of going down the list of abilities and saying, just make sure that there's some interpersonal. Make sure that there's a technical ability that gets you, you know, try and just make sure that everyone gets screen time, which is sort of the, you know, boring, nice guy version of how you put it together. But you, once you start thinking about that, that will give you more variety in presentation because it's easy just to write an endless series of research or library use roles that gives you clues, or tests, rather. But it's, um, it's much harder to think, okay, how would oral history gather this clue? How would astronomy help me in this adventure at all? And then, you know, once you've started thinking about that, you said, well, maybe the stars are right. Maybe there's an eclipse coming up and that's when the serial killer works. Maybe the little match girl is out there, you know, because there's a supermoon and she wants to, you know, 
and, and, and that's why she's out there that night. And so the astronomy clue comes, well, maybe someone went out to, to look at this weird um, uh, moon dog, and you could actually find someone who was out in the park at 1.30 in the morning when you normally wouldn't. And so all of these things are just sort of percolating along. So it, it comes mechanically, and it comes thematically, and then it also comes, like Gareth says, just what does the adventure actually cry out for to get you off the dime and into the next scene? The, the, my process from the initial premise into the more fleshed out series of scenes and then the connections between the scenes is often imagistic because you do not want uh, every uh, scene of a, where investigation occurs to merely be plotting and legwork. You want interesting things to happen in those scenes that are memorable in and of themselves and relate to whatever the genre is. So you might want to have, if it's uh, Ashen Stars, you might say, well, how do I have them encounter this information in a really interesting, futuristic visual environment? Oh, well, it's a giant golden pyramid that uh, the uh, Darug built and no longer know how it uh, works because it comes from the three-year Darug re Renaissance. Or if it's you know one of the horror games, it's like, what's what's really a horrible, awful thing about this situation that will just make them uneasy? And, of course, the easiest way to do that is to have interesting people for them to get the information from. Now, obviously, you do want a balance of, you know, you don't only want to have the interpersonal skills, but they are a little privileged, um, and I think particularly in my things, because they allow you to, to talk to other people, and talking to other people, I think, is more fun and interactive than... Uh, just looking at stuff and interacting with, with the environment for the players. And so I will start with these images. You know, I want this for places or whatever. And, and, then, and then I start to think of, well, logically, how would you get from A to B? What would lead you there? And then once you come up with a logical one, you can, as Ken suggests, come up with a bunch of alternative ways to get there. Because what you're really doing, if you're making notes for yourself or if you're preparing a published adventure, is you're also, there's always the implicit in every seen in a gumshoe adventure, there's the, or anything else that seems to make sense that the players do, that works too. And sometimes I find myself writing that again and again. Uh, sometimes I wish that was just always implicit, but our playtest feedback always shows that no matter how much you know that intellectually, you do tend to lock into it, and you don't want any scene to be pixel bitching, especially if the players are coming up with cool ideas. Uh, so it helps to sort of leave space to get them from A to B. And if you, you know, know that you want, you know, there's a constellation of scenes in this area before you move to this other area, you know, you can make ways for you to move between those scenes in different ways that aren't necessarily on the page. But you want to, I, I try to make sure that the scenes themselves each have something really memorable about them. Um, that, that memorable element can be something as simple as the local color of an area, that uh, if you're putting something in the real world, for example, that you can, you know, just re research it with today's amazing uh, resources at our facility on the, on, on the internet and come up with a sense of local style and atmosphere that would have taken you months to gather uh, back in the olden times. Yeah. And then, you know, just finding the cool, weird things about whatever place you've set it at uh, can really inspire uh, ideas or just sort of background atmosphere. One sort of revelation I had from when I started working on gumption stuff to where I'm now, is like when I started off, I thought like you know, clues have to be like pieces of information. Like you know, the players have evidence selection; they find this evidence. The players have um, give me an example of a investigative ability. Uh, uh, forensic anthropology. Forensic anthropology. They look at the body. They learn this. But you actually have 
the information be contained in sort of like a small sub-scene that's only available with that ability. Like, you know, you friends of anthropology, you meet the local coroner, you chat over coffee, they spill on some rumours. And that way you can connect, you can use abilities to give information that wouldn't be immediately associated with that particular ability. You, know, you don't expect forensic anthropology to give you insider gossip on the local police station, but you can go through that. That shows the player like you, there's more to this ability than just I look at bodies. Right, and then there's your whole issue of spends, right? It's your, first you start off uh, coming up with the bare bones thing that moves the players through the plot, and then you, uh, as you write, often you're just inspired to think of cool thing, additional things that they could do if they search for information. And again, there's the implicit, and if they ask for another spend in the situation, find something cool to give them. Uh, earlier today, while uh, Gar was uh, uh, demoing uh, Trail of Cthulhu, I got to saw, see his uh, gears turn as someone said, I'd spend a point of theology. And there's the moment where, oh, okay. Uh, you've, seen, you've, seen, you've seen this like, you know, ultra performance, the South American cult, and like, there were, um, the uh, these, uh, missionaries came in and burned their place down, and the cult immediately collapsed, as if like, the people had no faith, they were just kept in check by something. So you're pretty sure that if you smash this altar, it'll, it'll like, you know, break whatever power is here. So the guy went, smash, smash, smash. And the knight going outside, the cult had summoned, just went thump, and bubbled through the ceiling. Um, and so if you are, uh, if you can sort of, uh, using Gar's earlier great suggestion of envisioning yourself running this scenario, as you go through the scenes, envision yourself being put on the spot by someone who's, who's really great at picking weirdo spends to ask for, and that can help you get the cool little grace notes that really make the investigation come to life and gain color and, and moment. Spends for me are a, re are a reward. Um, they're they're like the dessert in the scenario, the, little, yep. the, the, the raisins in the in the raisin bread. And when I'm researching, if I'm setting it anywhere at all in the real world, I'm on Google, I'm on you know down in JSTOR and Wikipedia and wherever else, and I'm going to find awesome things that make the real world seem more terrifying and paranoid. And so if I can't work it into the scenario straight away, I'll say, well, this is a one point spend because it doesn't actually necessarily advance the story, but it adds coolness. It's it's a it's a flavor. Right, and it's a little flavonoid. And if it's so cool that I definitely want everyone to hear it, it's a zero. It's a zero point spend. And the zero point spend is something that I think people uh, neglect. Maybe I, mean, I, I hope they don't neglect them, but I, I sense that they do because you get to the point that um, uh, you know the zero point is only for the core clue. The zero point should be for anything that you want to show up in the scene. If you look at the adventures by the guy who designed Gumshoe, yeah, right. <laughs> they are almost entirely zero point spends. Yeah. yeah, and so uh, I will, I will have, um, uh, I, I will, I will put these little nuggets of information that I find out as spend suggestions into the, into the scenario. And again, if it's a two point spend, it really does need to, uh, you know, make your, you know, like your theology thing, yeah. smash the altar, the night gone falls yeah. down. It has to be something practical as well as just making everyone go, oh man, we really? Which is, you know, what a zero or one point spend does. And, and if you just keep in mind that a spend is a, is a currency of coolness, that if you're spending it, you're buying cool from the GM, Yeah. right? And that that is what you, the GM, your job is, is to, is to sell cool at a, at a, at a uh, going out of business land office rate. What I try to do for spends is to give small pools of general abilities and often it'd be a very bad deal to make that spend. Cause like, you know, spending a point of theology to gain like, you know, one point of 
um, like a free point floating reassurance point, doesn't really help the player because they get the player might have reassurance anyway. But it's nice to put things to go like, oh yes, like, you know, I know that priest, therefore I can be able to you know, chat to him one on one when the time comes. And, and of course, uh, the great thing about operant conditioning is the size of the reward doesn't matter. Yeah. Just the fact that the, you got a reward is what your brain remembers. Right. And so it's basically a, a make, making a spend is, uh, you know, per, permission to be uh, awesome, Captain. Yes. You know, that's what they're putting forward there. And permission granted should pretty much always be your answer. Yes, unless you're totally stumped. But, that's, yeah. um, you know, when you get a situation where you can't quite think of what to do, that you can always just... Uh, describe them doing the thing they would get to do anyway in a super awesome manner. So it's like uh, instead of just saying from your uh, history skill that you know that this is an area where the uh, Spetsnaz used to be active, you can say if they spend for a point, well, as you, as you were lecturing, uh, consulting the uh, Blackwater on this, and you talked to this guy and he gave you this great gun, and the gun has always reminded you of the time that you got drunk and talked about the Spetsnaz, then you can sort of add levels of detail that are just basically the subtext of that is you're awesome. Yeah, you're badass. So that was Ken and Robin Recycle Audio. We will recycle more audio from the Gumshoe Adventure Masterclass next episode. The creaky cobweb stairs and the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky tell us that we've once more entered the comforting yet eerie confines of the consulting occultist. This week, the consulting occultist is going to tell us about yet another 19th century spiritualist who uh, (laughs) maybe didn't uh, leave a huge um, mark on the corpus of occult thought, but is important and interesting because of the intersection of her life with one of the seminal, perhaps the seminal figures of horror literature. Ken, why are we interested in Sarah Helen Whitman? Well, if we are interested in Sarah Helen Whitman, it's almost more than Edgar Allan Poe was, um, although he did uh, dedicate to Helen to her, which is nice of him. But she was a lady, a widow, who lived in Providence, uh, when Poe was in Providence, she was a transcendentalist, which will immediately tell you everything that's wrong with her. And the rest we can solve by the fact that she is an ether addict. Okay, so for people who are not immediately recalling to mind our previous discussion of transcendentalists, give us the quick 101 on uh, why that might suggest what is wrong with her. Uh, the transcendentalists are basically the deep, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the founder of transcendentalism, uh, and someone with an unaccountably good uh, reputation, is basically the Deepak Chopra of the 19th century. It's all about uh, a big oversoul and living your best life and all kinds of nonsense of that sort that um, uh, the world is is to be forgotten and, and we should all concern ourselves with wandering around New England, uh, not worrying about our job, which is great if we're Ralph Waldo Emerson, but not so great if we're an actual person. So it's the 19th century version of, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Exactly. And Hence the name transcendentalism. Yes. And it's actually even worse than that because you also have to buy a lot of, you know, specific nonsense as well as just general nonsense. So, uh, Mrs. Whitman is a transcendentalist. She is definitely a scenester of the transcendental scene. She hangs around mesmerists. Uh, she, you know, is buddies with a bunch of other, uh, transcendentalist leading lights and leading ladies, 
in Boston and Lowell, Massachusetts, and Providence, as I mentioned. She she wears a, a tiny miniature coffin mm-hmm. uh, as a necklace, uh, making her uh, perhaps the foremother of the Goths. Yes, scene. she wore black because, as a widow, she was socially entitled to wear black. And like many uh, people before and since, she realized she looked immensely better in black than she does in any other color. And so uh, if you look at the pictures of her that are available on the Internet, you say, well, that's, you know, all right if you like that kind of thing. But perhaps if you're Edgar Allan Poe, this is not exactly the... um, uh, She's the sort of person of whom you said she is a handsome woman. She is a handsome woman. She has possibilities. But Edgar Allan Poe was not interested in that. He was either interested in um, uh, impossibly unattainable uh, society beauties or... But girls that we would now consider inappropriate for the interest of uh, poets of any stripe, uh, no matter how good they are at poetry. Young girls, uh, his first, I forget if she was his first wife or his, his, his uh, true love, Virginia Clem, was like 12 when they met, which is just, um, even then, that's was sort of creepy. It. That's pushing yeah. it. Even, even, th- even, in, even in those more permissive, open-minded days, yes. 12 was considered too young for a poet. Yeah, or anyone. Or anyone. And um, anyway, so he is, while uh, a young Virginia is dying of tuberculosis, Poe is, is tomcatting around because he is not a particularly admirable person in the romantic front. Um, and among the people he tomcats around are the ladies of Mrs. Whitman's circle. He is uh, hanging out in Providence just because that's what you do if you're a horror writer. He's a, he's a, a, he goes there a, a great deal for uh, lectures because that's how he's making his money is going out. He, he does lectures on various topics and he reads his poems and he looks uh, gothic and faint and ladies uh, fall for him and uh, throw little coffins on stage, I guess. I don't know. Um, and so he he's with another woman uh, after her lecture, walking her home and who, who looks much more like Poe's type, by the way. And Francis Osgood, who is the, the poet that he is uh, talking to, says, oh, that's where Mrs. Whitman lives. Would you like to meet her? And he's like, not really. And uh, <laughs> so I think that that is sort of the, the key moment that you have to, I mean, he's obviously seen her around. He knows who she is, but it's, would you like to be formally introduced to her so that you can call on her without social scandal, without too much social scandal, and so that you can write letters to her? And he's, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get around to it. And so um, then she starts writing him Valentine's Day poetry, and then he takes the previously written poem to Helen and sends it to her on the grounds of, hey, there you go, kid, knock yourself out. It already says Helen on it. It already says Helen on it. What a time saver. And then he writes her a new to Helen poem. Because she doesn't believe the first one is from him. She Right, yeah, because he doesn't put his name on it, uh, thinking that it's obvious who it's from. But it's because it's printed on there. It could have been anyone sending her to Helen. And so then he writes her another poem to Helen because I think that or one to of his Helen other to the reckoning to Helen <laughs> to the, the Helening. Um, one of his other interests in uh, ladies is are they capable of financially supporting Edgar Allan Poe? An and important that is question for poets throughout the ages. <laughs> throughout the ages, and that is something that uh, Mrs. Whitman could do apparently. Uh, and so therefore that correspondence is blown in Mrs. Whitman's mind, if not anyone else's, and it is a fraught historical question, how many people uh, thought that Poe and Mrs. Whitman were going to get married or run off together. Poe seems to have thought he was going to get married or run off together with a different uh, widow in Lowell, Massachusetts, named Annie Richmond, which is very confusing if you think that she lives in Richmond, uh, where Poe is from, but she's in Lowell, Massachusetts. And so there's, I guess you could call it a love triangle between his 
basically shining. But, but really, more she's more the backup widow. Yeah, she's the, she's he's keeping her on a string in case he needs a spare widow. But he's pursuing not just Annie Richmond, but another lady, Sarah Elmira Royster, who is, who he'd met as a child, and uh, because he was Poe, then no doubt f- fell in love with. Uh, many of Whitman's friends disliked Poe intensely. Elizabeth Ellett, who is a historian, and therefore I, I already like her, uh, really hated Poe, and kind of, um, if, if this were if this were the modern day, she'd be like, you know, saying all kinds of horrible things about him on Twitter, and have a whole Tumblr dedicated to his awful behavior. Uh, and and she, this is not uncommon, right? Because Poe's uh, so-called friend and, and first biographer uh, really tore every possible stripe off him uh, yeah. in his biography of him. And yeah, Rufus Griswold, who Poe, <laughs> for reasons known only to Edgar Allan Poe, and possibly not even then, made his literary executor. So Griswold really just, dis- everything that you think you know about Poe, about him being an opium fiend, and a, a serial um, uh, adulterer, and all kinds of other things, you know because Griswold said it. And Griswold is a big liar. Now, again, his conduct does not withstand close scrutiny, but that's a whole different thing, and he did have a condition whereby he couldn't drink. He was just probably allergic to it in a way that some people are. He was just a really cheap date, and, you know, one glass of brandy would sort of set him off, and two glasses would have him, you know, diving after right. barmaids. This is or Poe, not Griswold. Yeah, Poe. Right. Well, Griswold, God knows what his bad habits were, besides lying about Poe. Um, but anyway, Griswold and Ellet were were tight. Um, they, were, they were part of the We Hate Edgar Allan Poe fan club, and Ellet was a friend of Mrs. Whitman because she was a real writer and a real historian, and Mrs. Whitman... If she knew anything, she knew real literary talent when she saw it. So she'd suck up to, to Mrs. Ellett. And that was the other reason that Poe really didn't like hanging around with Mrs. Whitman, because you could never show know when Elizabeth Ellett would show up and start saying snotty things about you at, at your garden parties. The, the story is that Poe and Whitman are engaged, and Mrs. Whitman says, now we can only be married if you give up demon rum, and he basically get purposely gets drunk at the engagement party so he can call the wedding off. And that's kind of a, a cool move, but it seems to be entirely fictional. And then Mrs. Whitman basically <laughs> dined out on having been Poe's last love who could have saved him from himself for many, many years until uh, Annie Richmond published her letters from Poe saying that she was his actual one true love and that he was just shining Mrs. Whitman on. And Mrs. Whitman is all like, oh yeah, let's see the originals, uh, forgetting that she has been doing exactly the same thing. And then conveniently dies of uh, heart failure or something like that um, uh, immediately after uh, Mrs. Richmond's letters come she out. She died of a long, delayed, broken heart, the way that they do in 19th century fiction. She died of, <laughs> of being um, uh, outshone in the apparently highly competitive world of Poe's last love. <laughs> uh, so this is a, a, a tangled story, uh, but perhaps uh, not a particularly resonant one. How do we make it more interesting by making stuff up? Well, uh, you know, first of all, Rufus Griswold did a great job of making it interesting by making stuff up. I think we can only follow him. We can uh, certainly Does say... Does his making stuff up have ghosts in it? It could, it could do. Um, you can certainly add ghosts to the things that Griswold made up. You can say that there is either a um, uh, a, a spirit of 
jealousy and anger that that's another spirit, maybe a dead poet who never got any re- respect and hates Poe and is therefore possessing Elizabeth Ellet and possessing Griswold and, and, you know, sort of moving around. And it's why no one can ever make up their own emotional mind for two seconds in this group. Uh, the other possibility being they're all transcendentalists and therefore unmoored from any reality. You can certainly have... Uh, Mrs. Whitman was, uh, as, as we mentioned, a spiritualist and an occultist and a mesmerist, so she could be surrounded by any number of, of ghosts and demons. Uh, she could be summoning them. She could be an innocent victim of them. H.P. Lovecraft begins the shunned house famously by saying, While walking to pay court to Mrs. Whitman, Edgar Allan Poe never looked at the shunned house, which is one of the great oblique openings yeah. <laughs> in horror literature. <laughs> if he, only sh- he'd he known, shunned it extremely well. He, sh- he shunned it so. If only he'd known there was a werewolf vampire ghost buried in the basement, he wouldn't have been such a such a jerk. Um, and so you can have, you can bring in Lovecraft's uh, werewolf vampire ghost because it's like right on the same block, basically. And uh, again, that's a possessing sort of a werewolf spirit. So you have a sort of a, a, a personality change. It, that could be why it, maybe it possesses Poe every so often. And what we think of as his drunken outbursts are actually the werewolf spirit taking a hold of him. So it's really the werewolf courting uh, Sarah and, and Poe himself courting uh, the other widow. Yeah. So it's really Mrs. not Richmond. his fault at all. It's it's a yeah. Poe werewolf thing. Right. It's it's a love quadrangle. Right. And once you figure out that two of them are in Edgar Allan Poe, you can work out a pro rata system, you'd think. Exactly. Well, uh, now that we've added uh, werewolf love uh, to the story, I think that we've uh, fixed it up and can uh, conclude yet another exciting podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Stone Skin Press. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Equip us with improvised forts by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter book, or Edgar Allan Poe mash notes by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.